but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. And on this 149th episode, we thought we were going to be doing a pretty run-of-the-mill kind of boring show, and then last night, a whole damn segment fell into our laps. <laughs> we've been gone a minute, so we've been building up things to talk about, and then, as you said, the biggest news of the past few weeks came out. Naomi Osaka, recent winner of the Australian Open, has parted ways with her coach, Sasha Bayan. Mm-hmm. A shock? As much as a coaching change can be shocking in this day and age, this one stunned me. And a lot of people. Yes. And then with retrospect and looking back at it and reading the tea leaves, there were signs, which we'll get to later on. Mm-hmm. What you thought was going to be your big tour de force, darling, on this episode was Mr. Joe Willie Sanga and his resurgence. <laughs> Storming back. He didn't play for a good seven, eight months last year, was off with a knee injury followed by surgery. He had fallen out of the top 200. Can you believe that? Yes, I, I, I can believe it. He, even with his title, has barely any points. He won his first title in Montpellier. He is very well-versed in French ATP 250s. He's won Moselle a few times. He won Marseille, Lyon. A large swath of his ATP titles have been in these smaller ATP tournaments in France. Mm -hmm. But this is his first in Montpellier in the Sud de France Open. Well, what do you got to say? All week, all I could get was, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Yeah. Look at Joe. Look at Joe. Look at his Instagram. Look at this. (laughs) He, the Songa team has been tearing it up on social media. Been on Instagram live, doing stories, pictures. I went through his timeline and realized I've liked probably every single picture he's ever posted, which is a little bit sad. Je suis un fantôme. (laughs) That was, I feel like that was really good. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh, I did two years of French when I was nine years old. I can't, I no, can never seven. get I was seven the, years old. the French pronunciation for the word UN. I'm not even going to say it. Oh, uh, lies. I was 10. 10 and 11 were my French years. It was also the class that I got my worst grade ever in. 14%. Uh, I walked to the front of the class, received it, and gagged. And then giggled all the way back to my seat. Mm -hmm. 14%. (laughs) How is that even possible? (laughs) There was a lot of red on that test. (laughs) Yeah, he seems to be embracing the fact that people are into him uh, for his personality and his looks. Uh, He must know that, right? I mean, they're... All you people are out here thirsting at him at every turn, so that surely that cannot go unnoticed. That Insta story when he said, Je suis un fantôme, and he sort of creeping around in the background it was very cute, very endearing. What's heartwarming about this is that just a few weeks ago, Joe said something that implied he might not be around for very long. He said, you know, who knows how long I can continue doing this, how many more months? He was speaking in terms, really short-term time frame here. So a lot of us fans were kind of in a panic. But I think now that he's been playing like he is able, maybe he will reassess. 
I imagine it's just a lot of frustration not being able to string matches together. But this week, he uh, he beat three seeded players in Montpellier, uh, Simon Chardy in a long, dramatic match, and then Herbert in the final. Shout out to Pierre Hugues because he's had a great start to the year. He's inside the top 40, lost today in his first round. I believe in Rotterdam is where he is now. Mm. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But prior to that, he had had a pretty strong start to the year. And while there are no... I think that's the stat is that there's no Frenchman inside the top 30 anymore, but there's like 72 of them between 30 and 50. That math doesn't add up, but you get <laughs> right. the gist. It seems that maybe the French contingent is getting its shit together in 2019, to start the year at least. Yeah, but a lot of that great French generation is aging. Many of them are over 30 at this point. Gasquet, Monfils, Songa are all part of the same group. I don't know who is replacing them for Team France. Hugo Humbert is one of them. Luca Puy? Yeah. Have you had your fill of Songo yeah. in this segment? I think people want us to talk about the Naomi and Sasha split. Mm-hmm. That, See, I told, you, I told you that this was your opportunity. The only chance you've had to talk about Songa is <laughs> wishing that he could be a dark horse yes. at any number of tournaments and me shooting you down. And so no, this was your moment to shine and you've only used four minutes of it. I should say he is back in the top 150 again. Rising 70 spots. That's how few points he had. That winning a, a 250 title shot him up 70 spots in the rankings. Welcome back, Joe. I think you're in a bit of a hurry to get to the Sasha Naomi news. But as is typical of our episodes, we're going to get through the, the tennis stuff first. And then we'll get into the off-the-court stuff. So next up, we have Fed Cup. Last week was Fed Cup. And the big news of the week was the Czech team losing in the quarterfinals. There were some blockbuster matchups in the quarterfinals of Fed Cup this past week. This is the first time that the Czech team has lost a home tie since 2009. The Czech team has been world beaters, has won Fed Cup, what, five or six times in the last decade. They have an incredibly deep bench, but unfortunately ran into Romania, who brought everybody. And Simona Hall. Right. Which is the danger for teams in this format. When you have a world number one, even if you might think of Romania as being the the weaker team, when you have the world number one able to play two matches and win two points, as she was able to, then you really come down to having to win one of the reverse singles or the doubles match. And it also kind of puts into perspective just how good the Czech team has been over the last decade, that something like this hasn't happened to them before. Mm Mm-hmm. On paper, this is a very tight matchup, and it played out that way. You have the number one player, Simona Halep. You have Karolina Pliskova, who has already won a title on hardcourt in January, made the semifinals of the Australian Open. You have Siniakova and Krejcikova playing doubles, who won Roland Girls and Wimbledon just last year. You have Begu and Nicolescu in doubles who, I mean, Nicolescu is a confounding player to play against, and they're a great team themselves. Um, Halep and Pliskova was a riveting match, took over two and a half hours, over three sets. The decider was that doubles match, which lasted almost three hours. Nicolescu and Begu worked that one out, and Romania upsets this Czech Republic team, and now kind of anything goes in Fed Cup for the rest of the year. Elsewhere, the Australians traveled to Asheville, site of last February's return for Serena Williams to beat the U.S. team. And they were led by one Miss Eshbadi. Asheville became Asheville. Clever. (laughs) 
The U.S. team, you know, they fielded a team without Venus, without Serena, without Sloan. It was led by Madison Keys and then Danielle Collins and Sonia Kennan. Still a team that on paper is formidable. Yes. Because Kennan showed out in Australia. She's up and coming. Collins made the semifinals in Australia. And Madison is there as well. So that's not a team that should be a pushover by any stretch. No, it's not, not to be sniffed at. Keys and Barty should have been a very competitive match. Madison won the first three games, and that was all she wrote. Barty won the next five games after that, won the first set, finished the match in straight sets. Danielle Collins was actually what made the tie quite exciting. This is her first Fed Cup tie for the U.S. It's probably an atmosphere that she thrives in, coming from college, being a largely, uh, how do we say, confrontational player. (laughs) She definitely feeds off the team vibe of Fed Cup. She managed to uh, come back from a break in the third set to beat Gavrilova and forced the fifth match of that rubber. And in that fifth match, Ash Barty and Priscilla Hahn took out Collins and Melikar. And Melikar, who herself is a Czech-born American, has won a major in doubles before. That's a great team, too. So Ash Barty leaves North Carolina having won all three of her matches for Australia. Belarus beats Germany 4-0. That was a drubbing. Uh, Some people were criticizing Angelique Kerber and Yulia Gerges for not playing. And at this point, how can you even be mad about that? They have been stalwarts for years. They are in their late 20s, early 30s. I mean, Germany should have a deep enough bench to make this competitive. They had a deep enough bench. They had Zygmunt and Petkovic, neither of whom were able to mount much of a challenge at all. No, I mean, that sabalenka Sasnovich tag team at this point in history is very hard to beat, clearly. And Azarenka did not play singles, but she did play doubles and won a point... Uh, in a dead rubber, beating Grunfeld and Bartel. Grunfeld, who was born the same year I was, so you know she's she's up there. That is rude, because <laughs> you are very old. That was like a self-drag. In the last tie of the quarterfinal stage, France beats Belgium 3-1, and notable in that tie was the return of Caroline Garcia to the French team, a team that also included Kiki Mladenovic. Which, as you know, if you've been following the show and tennis in the last couple of years, there have been numerous incidents, uh, drama-filled incidents between the two, for whatever reason, over over that time. Yeah, there was, a, I guess, a friendship that ended. Cornet got into a bit of the mean girling, along with Mladenovic back in the day, but I guess bygones are bygones, and Garcia has rejoined the Fed Cup team. Those semifinals will take place the weekend of the 20th and 21st of April, which is not far from now. And uh, in France, the French team will take on Romania. And then in Australia, Ash Barty and the the clan will take on Belarus. So, I mean, as far as the Final Four, that's a pretty good lineup. Mm -hmm. We could talk about Davis Cup, but we we shan't. Davis Cup did meet, uh, the, so the week after the Australian Open, we didn't record that week, obviously. The guys were playing in the, well, sort of traditional format, gearing up for the finals in November, which is going to be in Madrid, in La Caja Magica. Mm-hmm. I literally just said we weren't talking about oh. it. Oh, it was, it was just a brief, you know, <laughs> FYI. No analysis. Okay. <laughs> 
Let's talk about Juan Ignacio Londero, who played in the inaugural Cordoba Open down in Argentina. He's 25 years old, won his first match on the ATP level, and then won four more to win his first title. He's currently 5-3 and three on the ATP main tour, and those five wins all came this week. He's up from number 112 to 69 in the rankings, and uh, it's, it's instructive to look at a guy like Londero and see how being just outside the top 100, you can exist in that space without ever really winning on the ATP tour or playing many matches, and also just how much a career boom it can be to have that one breakthrough. I mean, in his case, it was a huge breakthrough winning a tournament, but even going to the quarters of a main draw event, winning two or three matches in one week can make that huge difference between being in the 110s and then in the in the 70s and not having to qualify for a bunch of these events. Mm-hmm. He got his ranking all the way to 112 off of challengers. In 2018, he stopped playing futures pretty much, played challengers, got 52 wins. Like the, the sheer amount of travel and work that you have to put in to get 52 wins on the challenger circuit is crazy for very little money he won two challenger titles last year but i was surprised that his ranking was so high not having won any main tour matches at that time darko gernkarov mm-hmm. guess who's back back again <laughs> darko's back tell a friend really really well. we're quoting eminem on this podcast paraphrasing I mean, it just came to me. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Where to start with Darko? I uh, I still follow him, and he still follows me, so I don't want to jeopardize that. So I am compromised as a commentator here. I know a lot of y'all have been blocked recently. Darko started a GoFundMe for medical bills, for a surgery to repair what he says is nerve damage in his ear. Stemming from his stroke. Yes. As... Reported by Ben Rothenberg last year, there are uh, questions, I guess, that have not been completely answered about (laughs) who Darko is. If the pictures he's posting are him or another person. Well, since that article, he he seemed to have put aside aspirations for a professional career. Because where, Mm. where that was coming from was, in part, we kept hearing, oh, I'm going to be making my debut here, my debut here. And then it'd be, it'd be pushed back. And then you couldn't find any trace of him on the ITF tour, on the junior level. It was it was wild. Right. So assuming that that whole mess was accurate in that he wasn't actually a player. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Not here to comment on that. He became kind of a like an inspirational leader of the Twitter sphere. You know, <laughs> stealing and plagiarizing quotes here and there to uplift his followers yes uh copying jokes from people like tweets that were clearly stolen but this is par for the course on instagram and twitter um stefanos tsitsipas for one does it (laughs) and uh i have a hard time getting too upset about it because this is kind of what people do on social media now is take other people's intellectual property or creative content and retweet it uncredited. Mm. A bit of a side note, I do take some issue with Stefanos because he presents himself as being somewhat authentic and uh, visionary is too much of a, a strong word, but somebody who has 
some autonomy over his own creative direction and his etherealness and <laughs> otherness. And so to then just present block quotes from other people unattributed as some kind of thought experience mm-hmm. that is it's going to be received as, wow, Stephanos is so deep. Yes. You know, when you're presenting that image and then doing that, I come from an academic background like that. That just doesn't fly with me. And so it does take the sheen off a little bit, in my mm-hmm. in my opinion. That said, I'm told by a lot of folks that, as you said, this is what the kids do. That it's, Well, there it, are companies that make millions on doing exactly this, yeah, is lifting screenshots of people's jokes and passing them off as your own. And also that it was explained by Frith, I think, on Twitter that... You know, maybe it's the equivalent of us writing song lyrics in our journals when we're teens, you know, folks our age. Right. We just didn't have social media to to share it on back then. We would have done the same. It's possible. I just don't really like it. (laughs) No, I I agree. I don't really like it. But on, on the scale of things that we should be upset about, it's not really like riling me up. Sure. Does that make sense? To each their own. Mm -hmm. And a reminder that you are allowed to be mad about multiple things at the same time. That's true. But sometimes we have to, at least I, have to pick my battles. Mm -hmm. Not saying that this isn't something you shouldn't be annoyed about. And one that you are definitely not picking is with Darko Gernkrov because you you just want to see this play out. You want to see him on Ellen. I am interested. There are some things that we know is that Darko Gernkrov is a real person. We know also that the person running this Twitter account has posted videos and photos that are not them. The, fo- the photos have been a lot more consistent lately. They have. They're clearly the same person. We don't know if that is Darko or not, but they've been of the same person. We know that he admitted last year that some of the videos, like the video of him with the guitar singing and some of the tennis videos were not him. He admitted that. So he set up this GoFundMe. The goal was $5,000. Some people donated, and he kept updating us about how many people had donated and how grateful he was. Not very long after that, he announced that he was suspending the GoFundMe and he wanted people to divert the funds to other worthy causes. Other people on GoFundMe who were more deserving, that he was content with living with a disability to quote him, because yes. that's what he said. And so what had clearly happened was there were some discrepancies surrounding the, the GoFundMe insofar as I know for a fact from seeing on Twitter that at least a handful of people reported the GoFundMe as yes. fraudulent. Right. And whether or not it is or isn't, we don't know. We, we really don't know. I mean, it's suspected. All right. It's plausible given what we know. But that was kind of... I mean, your camp in this regard, that was a little bit much for My folks camp? to be... Yeah, because oh, okay. you're saying, like, let let the guy be. Well, I don't have a problem with reporting the GoFundMe if you believe that it's fake. Um, yeah, but we... I do have something of a live and let live philosophy about these things. Like, if you want to give money and you haven't properly vetted that person, then that's on you. Like, give the money. It's fine. Like, that's your choice. The This need to kind of prove to everyone that you know that this dude is a catfish is a little, it's a little odd to me. Like replying to every single tweet with, did you read this story by Ben Rothenberg? Like, yeah, like y'all, we have Google. 
Like, we're, we got it. Got it. Question to you. Do you listen to our podcast? Because obviously, <laughs> we've talked about it ad nauseum. Now, after he suspended the GoFundMe, he reached out to The Ellen Show again. This is an ongoing uh, preoccupation with this per- artist formerly known as Darko. He is obsessed with getting on The Ellen Show. And Ben talked about that a little bit in his story. One of the producers of The Ellen Show actually responded this time with, uh, like, consider consider it noticed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So responded to Darko, which induced this onslaught of people saying, do you know this guy's a catfish? Have you read this story? And I'm just like, why are you all not here for this drama? Like, I, I don't understand. Just let him go on Ellen and let him be found out if it's to be found out. And also let Ellen have some egg on her face. She kind of deserves it right now. <laughs> Are you that worried about the integrity of the Ellen DeGeneres show? Like, she would sure it, isn't. Would it shatter, shatter the social fabric? I, I am here for this drama. You're just here for all the mess. You I are am. like I am. In keeping with your reputation as being one of the messiest people around. Oh, oh. I have that reputation. Yeah, you're, you're known as the, at least of the two of us, you're much messier than I am. <laughs> I think a lot of that has been perpetrated by you. No. You're spreading it. It's it's a self-titled album for you. (laughs) I am just wondering, why is everybody such a snitch? I I just want to see more. I'm fascinated by the whole thing. A bit of breaking news today. Less than 12 months since her return to the WTA tour, Serena Williams has re-entered the WTA Top 10. Not through any active results of her own, but because of lack of results from a couple of folks which have then back-ended her up the rankings wow that is a very uncharitable perspective <laughs> i'm just describing how the actual re-entry yes. happened she has played eight tournaments since she's come back she's made the final in two grand slams um the quarters in the australian this year she made it into the top 10 because wozniaki pulled out of doha just today issuing a walkover, and Sevastova lost in her first match. Sevastova could have entered the top 10 for the first time. Petra Kvitova has decided not to play in Doha. She's defending the title, which means that Simona Halep, Karolina Pliskova, or Sloane Stevens can all take over the number two spot again. Wozniacki is down to 14. But as far as Serena's concerned, you're, you're chiding me just now for being uncharitable with respect to describing her re-entry to the top 10. But really, the true story here is just how incredible it's been, really. A, a lot of her return has been mired in in controversy and a lot of talk, as is everything that she does. But the fact that she was able to come back from giving birth in less than 12 months, be back inside the top 10, starting from scratch, it's, it's notable. Mm-hmm. It's not just notable, it's incredible, really. Especially when she doesn't play that frequently. I was reminded somebody posted this photo from one of the Venus and Serena documentaries a while ago. Serena and Isha were talking, and Serena said, Venus and I are back in the top five. And Isha said, girl, how are you both in the top five when you never play? Top (laughs) ten, I think it was. But yes, indeed, the point remains. (laughs) Which leads us to the big news of this episode. Do you want to walk us through it? (laughs) Yesterday afternoon, Naomi Osaka tweeted... Hey everyone, I will no longer be working together with Sasha. I thank him for his work and wish him all the best in the future. Just like that. It was terse. It was to the point. 
and most of us were not anticipating it. There had been some comments by Naomi in press at the Australian Open saying that she hadn't talked to Sasha that much recently. I guess not, you know, now it's coming out that Naomi had some practices that lasted like 10 minutes. Sometimes in Australia she didn't even hit with Sasha. This is coming from the Japanese source Nikon Sports, which was then uh, repeated in English media by AFP today. But there is very little inside information coming out about this coaching split. Naomi has not commented further than this tweet, and nobody is leaking. Sasha, for his part, responded to Naomi's tweet, and he said, Thank you, Naomi. I wish you nothing but the best as well. What a ride it was. Thank you for letting me be part of this. And it's been noted by some sleuths on the internet that Naomi has not interacted with that tweet one bit. She has neither liked nor responded to that tweet. And, <laughs> and if, you, if you go back to the Australian Open, you might recall when she was thanking her team, all she mustered for Sasha was, thank you for hitting with me this week, which was strange at the time, but you don't, you didn't know in the moment if it rose to the level of something's wrong or if it was just part of Naomi's weirdness. Yeah, that's the thing is people are very quick to read into Naomi's words and mannerisms and her manner in general, but she is fairly inscrutable to me. And maybe that's just, maybe I'm just misinterpreting who she is, but I, I don't feel like she gives a lot away. She's not, uh, she's not duplicitous. Like, I don't think she's even capable of that, but she's, uh, she's mysterious to me. I think that's on you, frankly. <laughs> I think she's very straightforward with what she says. Mm -hmm. And looking back, the fact that she was kind of uh, not forthcoming with the praise for Sasha kind of was uh, a telltale sign in retrospect. Mm -hmm. There was also folks talking about that moment in press where she was asked about Chris Everett and some of the advice that Everett had given her. And then she pivoted to say something along the lines of, well, you know, Chris is somebody who's done this and maybe it's more believable coming from her than from Sasha. And it was like, okay, well, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and it makes sense. But, you know, given what we know now, maybe that was another sign. That said, or Twitter timelines just devolved into a complete and utter mess and chaos after this news came out. And because of the terse nature of her tweet, uh, a lot of folks started running wild with all kinds of theories as to what had happened. Oh my god. The th I don't even want to give voice to the theories. No. Because there, were, there was this blind item by some rando account that is unnamed about, you know, insinuating something about a coach and a player back at the Australian Open. So then people ran with that. Oh, they must be referring to Naomi and Sasha. There were accusations that clearly Naomi has gotten too big for her britches, or she doesn't want to pay Sasha what, she, what he's worth. Or, I mean, all sorts of bizarre stories that are, are literally just cooked up out of nowhere because nobody provided any evidence, <laughs> any receipts that they had inside information. The most logical read on the situation to me and what I thought immediately was that well something happened behind the scenes that affected their relationship and if you consider that a coaching pupil relationship is so fraught in that the coach is 
an instructor, he's a disciplinarian, or she is a disciplinarian, that they are oftentimes a friend. And in this case, it seemed that Sasha and Naomi were friends as well. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that worked well for them. But at the same time, there's the employer-employee dynamic that in the end supersedes everything. And so it's easy to see how if something even small happened could work to combust this situation. And in, to my mind, if my reading of Sasha and from us sitting down with him in our one-on-one in Cincinnati is that he's very loose-lipped and prone to say things he probably shouldn't say. And <laughs> uh, given that, it, uh, it felt like only a matter of time before he may have stepped in it. And again, I don't know that this is something that has happened, but for them to have had this much success and for it to end so abruptly and tersely, it gives me the impression that something happened between the two of them. And it also makes sense to me that if something did happen, given the the precarious point in her career that she's at right now, Naomi, in terms of being a new world number one, multiple Grand Slam champion, embarking on this new phase of potential greatness like you know on a path to goatdom not like the goat but you know that stratosphere where you win a whole bunch of titles tens of millions of dollars you are that person Mm. you know she could be the face of women's tennis for the next next decade she her ceiling is that high and because she's that young i can see how she and her family would want to close ranks and cut out all potential mess within their ranks Mm -hmm. But again, this is speculation. is speculation, right? Like you said, when we spoke with Sasha, there were there were things that were clearly off the record, but were not made clear that they should be off the record. We used our best judgment and did not share those things. Yeah, talking to people you don't know in a room with other people you don't know <laughs> who could be recording a whole bunch of things. Right. And were recording things, and that could have gotten out yeah. easily, but didn't seem to have a care. Mm-hmm. There was a, a level of un earned trust on his part (laughs) with the people around him that you know could easily go wrong in the wrong situation right and i don't want this to sound inflammatory it's not like crazy stuff you know it's it it's not stuff that would like shake you to your core it 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 was just surprising how uh, forthcoming he was to people he didn't know for a podcast he had never heard of Right? It's like you were just talking with friends at the bar right. at the end of it. But, so, but, so he was an, a very in, endearing presence in that way. But you can see how that can go wrong. Uh, at the same time, we have no idea if this is about anyone's personality at all. That, you know, a lot of people jumped to, well, this must be about money. And I was wondering if I was being naive by not assuming that automatically. I feel that... You know, if it had been about money, the player puts up what what is conventional in the sport. Whatever whatever is standard to pay your coach at that level, mm-hmm. I'm sure the player would would pay that. Naomi has the money at right. this point. And is Sasha in a position to be like, well, I want double what everybody else makes? I, I, I just can't see that happening. Why would someone threaten their position but when they're would, in such a good place? But that would be his, his want and his right, and it would be her want and her right to say no. To say no, I want to work with you still, but I cannot honor yeah. it. Right. That it, is that is the professional, you know, nine to five film 
that can be put over the 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 relationship right because all those are the things that we see about the two of them we live in a, a shipping culture you know it's not necessarily a romantic <laughs> thing but people ship oh, coaches right. and players right and that's supposed to supersede everything else but there's also this professional component and if that is not working for whatever reason on either end then by all means move on mm-hmm. you know and that is just as valid for either of them the fact that there is so little real information has created such a vacuum for people to fill. But the fact that that vacuum is going to be filled doesn't make me feel then that, oh, either one of them should have been more forthcoming about what happened. I've seen a lot of people say, well, no, no, the, I, way that, the way that was written, like there, she's just inviting this speculation and she needs to come out and say something because this is just going to go on forever. And to my mind, having been around the game for a few years now, that was going to happen regardless. She mm-hmm. could have told you exactly what had happened, and 75% of y'all would not have believed it. Y'all would have come up with your own theories anyway and run with it. And the nature of Naomi Osaka and her stardom right now is it exists in relation to Serena Williams and her fans, for better or worse. Part of the reaction to this news is colored by that as well, still to this day. And that's going to happen regardless forever. And so now what Naomi is faced with is before it was like, well, she beat Serena at the U.S. Open, but, you know, all this other stuff was happened. Let's see if she can do it. Well, she did it at the Australian Open. Well, now she's doing it without the person who helped her get there. He was clearly the one who was responsible for it. Let's see what she's going to do next. It seems now, and it's not dissimilar to what we've seen with Serena chasing all these records, there's always going to be a goal that's a goal goalpost that's pushed mm. for her to achieve something and that's what's next for her the, the the entire narrative surrounding her going forward regardless of how forthcoming or not forthcoming she's she is about this split is how is she going to move on post sasha and the overriding narrative with that and the undertone is that he was very instrumental in helping her achieve these things the, the the idea being that without him she wouldn't have been able to do it and i rebuke that because i'm we've always been very careful on this show to not give too much credit to coaches you know there's this this coaching celebrity culture now within tennis where we want to give all the credit to the coach and it's especially the case in women's tennis where it's often a male coach and a female player and we, we see, we've heard this repeated by some of the coaches themselves, that the difference between men and women's tennis is that the women are more emotional and they need that kind of authoritarian male presence, <laughs> you know, to settle them down, yeah, you yeah. know? And that's, that's the undertone. And I, I rebuke it and I also don't necessarily believe it because especially in this instance, Naomi doesn't get to be number one in the world and a multiple slam titleist at 21 years old without incredible talent and she was exactly at the age where it would have been natural for a maturation to happen i'm sure sasha helped with that but to then think that you know wow she's ungrateful for all that he'd done and she wouldn't have been there without him or that she can't you know let's let's see the results now because like she's really going to struggle i think that's that's it veers into misogyny that's my read on it and I know some folks have already come from me on Twitter to say, well, where are you hearing this? Most people aren't saying this, blah, blah, blah. I don't care about most people. I've seen it. I don't need to come with I've receipts seen. to I've... say, well, here are... Somebody even asked me, like, can you point to me some of these tweets? 
to quote share open your eyes bitch <laughs> wherever you're tweeting from i guarantee you it has google too the, a few things a coach should be instrumental to someone's success don't you think that sure. that is a coach's job yeah regardless of gender regardless of where in women's or men's tennis a coach should be at least uh not responsible but instrumental in someone's development and achievements at the end of the day the player has to go out and do it in tennis some players are maybe too quick to fire coaches on the flip side some players double down if they've achieved great success with this coach because maybe they're afraid to to change the formula or maybe loyalty is that important to them right but if you, let's say you've won two majors someone like Muguruza you've won big tournaments with your coach you're, you feel maybe your coach has helped you to reach these great heights are you more hesitant to to part ways with with him in this case and i think whatever has gone on in the relationship between Naomi and Sasha that caused the split i think it shows a lot of confidence that she's willing to move on after achieving this incredible success at her age and try it with a different coach or no coach yeah what whatever she chooses think about it if she was not really having even 10 minute practices with him at the Australian Open and not even really on speaking terms really you know they had such little interaction at a tournament where she troubleshooted through through multiple three set matches mm-hmm. and was able to win coming off of the US Open and secure back-to-back slams if she did that without much influence or input from him how much confidence can she not take from that experience <laughs> right. yeah so you're not going to get a lot of speculation from us we don't know what happened i suspect very few people know what actually happened and i think my hypothesis is that there's not actually a lot of there there like the the drama that we're looking for the clashes whatever i don't really think there is a whole lot going on like it's the truth is probably a lot less mm. interesting than what tennis twitter thinks it is and remember in your personal relationships it takes such little breaches of trust to completely destroy relationships it do, it's almost never like a huge deal <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's not like oh my god he went out and cheated on me with five people last night that's not what happened <laughs> it could be the tiniest betrayal of trust the tiniest little crack in a relationship that makes you feel like well damn like this is not what it was anymore like it's not what i need right now mm. and she's also maturing at a very specific age in her life maybe she needs something different as well right there're all these small little things that that it could be that we have no idea what it's about and this idea that oh my god poor sasha <laughs> poor sasha i can't believe he was done bad like this let's let's be clear Sasha will be fine. Sasha was hired for a job, excelled in that job, was paid for that job, and now his resume is lit. Lit right. AF. He, WTA coach of the year. He's coached the winner of the last two Grand Slams. He will land on his feet. Right. He wanted to be taken seriously as a head coach and not a hitting partner. He's achieved that. Like you said, he's the 2018 WTA coach of the year. He will land on his feet. He'll be fine. There are a lot of top players who I'm sure would love to pick him up. 
we're going to do this segment now that we've been talking about for weeks that ha- did not make it to the final cut of any of our Australian Open episodes because there was just so much to talk about. We're going to be dealing with this ATP board drama. Out of principle, I want to address the reason that we skipped this was not because it's boring. John Wertheim, who is a premier international sports journalist, said on Twitter that he didn't want to cover this on his podcast because it's boring. He said ATP board equals audience board, B-O-R-E-D. He didn't say it was boring to him. He said it was boring to his audience. Right, which I feel, uh, as, as a reporter... One of one of the cardinal rules is that you don't talk down to your audience, right? Sure. Yes. You don't you don't assume that your audience is not interested in yeah. something. I mean, it, he was trying to be clever with the wording of the mm-hmm. tweet with b b o a r d and then b o r e d. That was poor, but there is an element of his podcast relies on advertising. Does it? I don't know. I haven't listened. Do they have ads on it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is supported by Sports Illustrated. Okay, so so I, they I think tra- they track numbers. I and, think they'll be okay. Okay, but they track numbers, and that's important to them, right? Probably uh, more so that definitely more so than it is to us. Oh, you mean because we're not ad supported? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> you, your con. There's a relationship between your content and your audience, specifically in terms of getting people to listen, because that's how you, that's how you judge your success. I agree. Right. But the the brush off annoyed me and, and absolutely the the thing that i really try not to do and i think we try not to do is to underestimate your listeners because i i typically assume that people who listen to the show probably know more than i do yeah a lot of them know way more than i do are there's, smarter than me there's so much we don't know right and we say that all the time right nt way there were some developments in the atp governance saga during the Australian Open. Long story short, the vote on Chris Kermode's contract has been delayed to the next meeting at Indian Wells in March. The uh, The ATP Players Council did hold a vote the Sunday before the Australian Open about whether to extend Chris Kermode's contract past the end of this year. It's been reported by Simon Briggs, who is, is really the beat reporter on the ATP governance thing. It was reported that the vote ended tied 5-5, so it's been delayed. The Players' Council is going to gather more information. I suspect some of it is we want to see what the hell is going on with Gimmelstab at that time. Briggs is assuming that the five who voted no to Kermode's extension are Djokovic, Query, Isner, Pospisil, and Rendi Lu. We don't know that for certain. Uh, ironically, since half of these people are dyed-in-the-wool conservatives, the revolutionary wing of the ATP Players Council, they want change. The way that this will eventually play out is that the ATP Board of Directors is the body that will vote on Chris Kermode's position going forward. Typically, the three members of the Board of Directors who are player representatives do vote according to the Players' Council's wishes. They're not required to, but that's typically how it works. So the Players' Council would vote, express their feelings on the matter, and then those three members of the Board of Directors who represent players would uh, presumably vote according to the Players' Council's wishes. 
the issue did blow up a little bit at the Australian Open, which I think was was foreseen. Stan Wawrinka issued this this uh, letter that was described as explosive, chastising the Players' Council for basically not being grateful for what you have, saying that Chris Kermode's tenure as the ATB president has seen a lot of progress, beneficial changes for players. He claims that a lot of the top players have not been consulted, even though the Players' Council has suggested that there was a pretty extensive consultation process before this vote. Rafa said the same, that he was not consulted. Apparently, Andy Murray stood up in the players' meeting and said, no players even know that a vote is happening. I wasn't consulted. Nobody I know was consulted. So a few of the kind of the top guys who've been around a while are suggesting that they were not contacted at all for their opinion. Again, so much of this stuff is is happening behind the scenes. We can't we can't really say what is true or not. What is clear is that there was added attention to this issue because of Justin Gimmelstab and his legal issues, and this was probably something that the board members and the players' council did not account for heading into Australia. Like they did not mm. think that this would have been a, a topic that would have had such added scrutiny, because for a lot of folks the stakes were even higher because of Gimmelstab's involvement. He flew down to Australia. Okay. He wasn't working as a, as a commentator, but he flew down specifically for this would-be vote. And uh, you saw that maybe Djokovic was caught a little bit off guard in press. He was. He because was. He, he ended up telling folks that many of the things that have been leaked to certain media are also not 100% true, calling it propaganda, saying that the issue is very complex and that there's no rush. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, Djokovic was clearly annoyed that these things had made it to the press. He feels that there's a leak on the Players' Council, and his biggest concern is the information leak, not not the subject at hand. I understand that, A, there is no rush, because the contract extends through the rest of this year. B, there's a lot of context that you and I don't understand, Mm -hmm. a lot of background that we don't know and see that this is an extremely complicated issue. I would argue that it's much more complicated for people ranked not number one. (laughs) Uh, You know, Djokovic can argue that players should receive a much higher percentage of the revenue of the Grand Slam tournaments, but my question, one of my, the overriding questions for me is, is he looking out for number one or is he looking out for the rest of the ATP? I don't, I don't know a, is mine. I don't think that's a fair question to him. I don't think he would be making these decisions solely for his own interest. But I do think that it's it's worth questioning whether him being a top three player for the majority of his career and currently world number one, if that in itself colors his view of the situation in a way that that disqualifies him from being able to represent players outside mm. the top 100. Mm. Which is why there, there are people from all levels of the ranking system right. on the right. on the the players council right that's that's a safeguard there mm-hmm. but to your point i don't think he he has you know ill intentions in terms of representing everybody in the atp i just don't know if he's like best equipped because of of his exposure as world number 1 and what 15 time 16 time grand slam champion i can't keep count anymore does that make sense uh, yeah you and i sat here a year ago and 
defended Djokovic when he was floating even the suggestion of a player's association or a player's union. All this sort of xenophobic criticism about unionization, about where he comes from. If the players are moving to unionize, I am generally all for that. What troubles me is like Vashek Pospisil's letter that wasn't meant to be public, was leaked, was saying we need a CEO sympathetic to our interests. I think you should disabuse yourself of that notion right now. There will not be a CEO sympathetic to your interests. That's not how this works. You need either a player's union or that's it. Like a CEO of the ATP is going to represent where the money is coming from. It's going to represent tournaments disproportionately. An organization that's set up to represent tournaments, sponsors, and players is not going to side with the players as a matter of course. And my issue here is I I don't know enough or I'm not involved enough or at all with this issue to be able to speak to whether or not Kermode is doing a good enough job to keep his keep his job going forward. I don't have an opinion on that. Mm-hmm. These players clearly do. What gives me pause is people like Pospisil who are explicitly saying that Gimmelstab is the person to do it. Well, is it explicit or is it like, well, we believe that we have the board, we, we have the board of directors necessary now to move forward. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. We have those player representatives who are going to speak for us. Yeah. One of those people is Justin Gimmelstab. Mm-hmm. And I want to know how much of this movement is with him in mind as the end goal. Mm-hmm. Because for me, that's untenable. <laughs> right. And we got Djokovic being asked about Gimmelstab in press at the Australian Open, saying, I'm comfortable, as are all of the council members. He's been someone that has always fought for the players' rights and represented players in a great way. I think there is some disagreement to be had about whether Gimmelstab represent the players fully. Kevin Anderson, as far as I know, has been the only one who explicitly said he's looking for a not guilty verdict. Because <laughs> Justin has decided to go to trial. He's pled not guilty. Um, according to some sources, he rejected a plea deal. I, I haven't seen that a lot, so I don't want to give a lot of credence to it. But the case is going to trial. Had he accepted a plea and possibly pled to either a misdemeanor or a felony, that probably could have hurt his career chances in the future with the ATP. Djokovic was also asked about Stokowski, and then he said, you can always focus on the negatives. There's always a person or two or three that in the past has stated something that is maybe not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think you have this here described as a big nothing sandwich. It's nothing. These statements throughout the Australian Open by Djokovic have been a whole lot of kind of negative space. It's, it's just a lot of words to mean absolutely nothing. I am all here for woke Djokovic, Wokovic, if you will. If he is someone who is leading the charge to unionize, if he has political motivations, uh, I want to see it. But when he's asked explicitly, what do you think about Gimmelstab? How do you feel about Stokowski's past comments about women and LGBTQ people? It's a whole lot of nothing. There is literally no substance behind the words. And he's being a politician in that instance, because if he does say something, say he does feel 
akin to how we feel about these two people, right? Say, mm. give him that. The political machinations of this situation would not really allow for him to turn his back on those people if his goal is to get Kermode out. Doing that would <laughs> undercut that. Right, right. So it's like, I even if I have problems with these dudes, which I don't think he does, but even if he did, I am going to carry them along to achieve this end goal. And you see it when Nadal is asked questions about equal prize money. It's kind of like, well, this really doesn't affect me, so I don't care that much. So Stakowski said some offensive things. Have you thought that deeply about it? Uh, do you know people who are actually impacted by those those words and actions? Well, even more so for Rafa. This time around, he was clearly agitated that he was being asked about this, mm. even going so far as to say, well, why are you always trying to like stir up drama, essentially? Mm. And then saying that he doesn't have enough information, that he's not the right person to ask, and why are you trying to drum up controversy all the time? <laughs> Which I get. I get. There is an element of, we need a quote from this top male player on this. If it's a negative quote that is controversial, well, it's probably probably even better. Mm-hmm. But at this point, he has nothing more to give, and he's doubly frustrated because he's answered it before, and it's not been good. It's and not he's doubled down on it. This, but... this economic argument, where he <laughs> pointed to, well, what about female models mm-hmm. he did he found the one job class in the universe where women are paid more the <laughs> the idea that i don't have enough information i have to do more research like you have been out here for 15 years when when do you think you will have the information mm-hmm. like can we put a timeline on that if you don't have it now clearly you're not going to get it it's I, very clear that you just don't care and for us as these top players with this great stature in the game, you benefit from all this other stuff. It's incumbent on you to be informed. That's part of your gig at this point, as far like, as I'm concerned. I, I feel it's not that... good enough to say I don't know enough when you've had that yeah. much preparation to form an idea. It, I'd almost respect it more to be like, well, this is how I feel. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Like, don't ask me again because this is what I think. Women should not be paid the same. Well, I don't. I can't say that I would respect that. But... I mean, you wouldn't. Not risk. <laughs> not not. You know what I mean. I know. I just say, like, the benefits and privileges of being a superstar and being extremely wealthy and known all the world over, uh, that kind of outweighs the minor inconvenience of being forced to have an opinion and express it about these things that you don't want to talk about. My questions going forward, which I, I don't think we're going to answer now, does the, the contingent that is anti-Chris Kermode does that reflect the views of the majority of players? I don't think that's been answered fully yet, and it's something I'm very interested to know. Does the kind of anti-establishment contingent on the Players' Council reflect what a lot of players are expressing? And if so, that may have quite a bit of validity. Uh, Another question is, is the Players' Council working actively to make the ATP Tour more equitable for players who are ranked outside, say, the top 50. Do you think that there's a strong push for unionization? Does that sentiment change the further you go down the rankings? The kind of the farther away from multi-millionaires? And do they believe that Gimmelstab is the one to lead them to the mountain? You went up to the mountain <laughs> and Gimmelstab was there. 
is is that what is that what you think so those are some things i i want to keep tabs of going forward tennis is so is really stingy with information there are so few reporters working in tennis who don't rely on tennis for access which is another sticky point of the sport because it is so small but that's something these are all questions that we are keeping an eye on moving forward this year i think that's also at this point a lazy take on it oh excuse me the fact is these for especially for an issue like this these players are in different cities all across the world every week and there's only literally a handful of tournaments where you get them all in the same place throughout the year and that's why we had this meeting happening in australia and then Mm -hmm. again in indian wells and if you're not being covered if you're not being funded by a big paper or news organization like the, a lot of the Brits are, yeah. then you can't you can't be on the beat. It's more than just access. Right. It's becoming more clear to me. Things we dislike and things we like. <laughs> Which do you want to start with? Uh, dislike. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, uh, this is all about the Grammy Awards. You know, I was sitting there and for the first half of it, it wasn't that bad. I was actually thinking to myself, wow, this is better than I re- recall. This is one of the better Grammy broadcasts that I've watched mm. in recent years. And then the second half just turned to shit. Like, complete and utter shit. With the exception of Casey Musgraves winning Album of the Year. There was the J-Lo Motown tribute, which was a total abomination. Unreal. Like, <laughs> I... I'm, I'm so... I'm still so angry about it. She wasn't even singing. Well, first of all, she was lip syncing. The whole t- at first, the I was like, "Wow!" The entire thing. I was like, "Wow!" She sounds better than I would have imagined. And then yeah. it's like, "Oh, ah, let's watch yeah. those lips." Uh huh. Cardi B was lip syncing her entire performance, by the way. But I like Cardi, and she wasn't enlisted to do a Motown tribute. Mm. And then when I realized, after waiting the entire broadcast to watch the Aretha tribute, one of the veritable goats in the history of music died last year and she gets one song in tribute on the broadcast and it's one of her shorter songs natural woman is one of the shortest songs in her catalog the whole thing lasted three minutes right it lasted not even as long as jennifer lopez was gyrating on that piano (laughs) i uh, supposedly there's a special coming uh, uh, like a special tribute to aretha later in the year i i heard which is neither here nor there, because as you said to me that night, how many times have we sat through like these 70-odd-year-old white men doing 10 oh minutes of God. their old dried-up songs like Neil that Young nobody cares the... about, Bob Dylan. Oh, my God. Joined, like, joined by Eddie Vedder. Like, come on. Crazy stuff. And so, yeah, I was not about that life. And then, okay, we got a rap song winning big awards. This is America. However, for me, that song was not good. And for me, that song was pandering very specifically to white people. And that's why it won. Yeah. Would it have like there's nothing that white people love more than racial porn. But would it have won without that video? No. Like I don't mean to say racial porn. That sounded bad. But do you know what I mean? Like racial strife porn. Well essentially. I I mean the video was violent and triggering and horrible. And it was meant to to say something much more profound. I don't know, uh, we could argue about whether it did or not, mm. but the song would be a non-factor had the video not come out. Like you would not know the song. I'm just like in the past 35 years, the four, almost 40 years of hip hop at the Grammys, this is it. 
like this is the first song you choose to honor with song or record of the year i'm just confused yeah although i actually think the grammys was overall quite good it's for me it's not a thing i dislike so the aretha franklin tribute was too short but you got two of the greatest singers working today fantasia and yolanda adams able to do their thing uh, unfortunately fantasia fantasia needs time like she started to bounce and that's when you know she's winding up and before she fully wound up the performance was over we didn't even get a lip quiver uh but you're right the show felt younger it felt like fresher janelle monet's performance casey musgrave's performance very understated uh brandy carlisle absolutely brought the house down yeah, that was she amazing. worked the hell out of that song lilith fair realness so many great performances by women and uh the awards overall actually weren't that bad like you said album of the year went to casey musgraves janelle monet would have also been a great choice this was not a beyonce taylor swift year mm. okay fair enough those <laughs> things were just that disgusting to me i did not like <laughs> fair it. enough Things we do like, however, is one day at a time. Y'all, this show is amazing. I know some of you may have watched the One Day at a Time in the early 80s, way back in the day, the original Norman Lear sitcom. This is also produced by Norman Lear, a Cuban Latin American spin on it. And like the performances are so good. It is a throwback to old sitcoms laugh track laugh track the format seems old-fashioned but they confront any issue you could possibly think of and they confront it in a human way that is honest about who their characters are like it never seems forced down your throat it's not like a very special episode kind of thing and it's definitely improved from season to season this Mm -hmm. was season three season three was as, as much as the show is great Season three was twice as good as the first two combined, in my opinion, Mm. because nothing about it felt forced. There were so many instances where a lesser show or even that show in season one may have gone a different direction. And they're like, no, we don't we don't need to. This great self-awareness from the writers and the actors that we are we are in this space where we can make these bold, unconventional choices for this format. Mm -hmm. And we're good. Right. And it, they're in a place now where the they know who their characters are. They can approach really difficult subject matter and and keep it difficult. Sitcoms as as a form often, you know, at the end of every episode it resets. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've reached the next episode, you don't have to have seen the previous one to get what's going on. But sometimes it lets you sit in, wow, this is a really difficult topic and uh, there's not a lot of resolution to be had at this time nor do you have to force some laughter in it Mm -hmm. because you're allegedly a comedy yeah you know they're in their sweet spot and they know it justina machado who i first knew from six feet under Mm -hmm. uh, almost 20 years ago finally has a starring role on a show and she is everything it would not work without her rita moreno who, you know, West Side Story, legend of the business, working for 70-odd years now, 60, 70 years. She's 87 years old and dancing up a storm on this show. <laughs> like, uh, she's a scene stealer, but also she's... I felt in season one that 
that while I adore her and I adored her on Oz, that's when I first yes, became yes. exposed to Rita Moreno. And, you know, it's we get every once in a decade this kind of role. We last saw it with Betty White and Hot in Cleveland, where we have this legend coming back in their in their twilight, in their uber twilight, mm-hmm. you know, to to give us something special. And that in itself is oftentimes meant to be enough. But in this instance, Rita Moreno is giving us that much more. And she's a legit Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy nomination for her role in Season 3, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So stream this show because we want a Season 4. On that note, thanks for listening. Next episode will be our 150th. Wow. Don't know if we're going to be doing anything special. Our sesquicentennial. We have not thought about it. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at the Body Serve on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for all the folks who have given us reviews on iTunes. There have been quite a few, especially since the start of the new year. It's been wonderful. We thank you. We urge you to continue to do the same. <laughs> uh, again, it's one of the tangible ways that you can help us build the profile of the show by letting other people know what you think about it, only if it's positive. That is the qualifier. <laughs> And also, we'll go a bit further in, if you are on Twitter, tag us and tell people what you like about the show. We'll retweet it. You know, just build the profile a little Mm -hmm. bit. Not above retweeting praise. We're not at that level yet. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.